Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the long overdue widening of Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley. Now, if you are a regular commuter, if you live in the valley, uh, we got lots of truck drivers who listen to the show who rely on that key transportation corridor, Highway 1. It is critical, and it's also crucially uh, clogged and congested at times. So we're getting the long-awaited, long-overdue widening. First phase of this, $345 million. So the first phase, Highway 1 widening to Abbotsford. Now, Leaders in the valley, though, mayors, business leaders saying, whoa, 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 you got to go way further than that. You need to widen this highway all the way out to Chilliwack. Now, taking a look at some of the plans that have come out in this highway widening, yeah, they've got, you know, it's a major project for sure. They'll, of course, they'll have the HOV lanes in there, electric vehicles. We'll have special access to the HOV lane. We'll get into that. My guest, John Rustad leader of the Conservative Party of B.C., MLH Nachaco Lakes. John, thank you for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me on this morning. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. So I know this is a project that's important to you, long overdue, right? Oh, there's absolutely no question. The the bottleneck um, should have been anticipated when way back when we first started uh, with the expansion and the replacement of the Portman Bridge. Yeah, so you think, so how long ago was that? Like, you're saying this is way overdue now. Well, that, when the Portman Bridge uh, was a project, you know, more than a decade ago now, yeah. um, when when it was being built, and you got to anticipate, I mean, the, the bottleneck was the Portman Bridge, and as soon as you free up that bottleneck, the bottleneck is going to keep moving up the valley until you get to a place where you have, um, you know, the, the appropriate traffic lanes required to be able to handle that volume. And I've been driving that, uh, that corridor myself a lot, especially this summer. And it's, it's brutal. I mean, people just crawl through there. It's very, very frustrating. Yeah, and when you take a look at the overall condition of our highway transportation system in, in British Columbia, would you say that, I mean, this is a long overdue project, I agree with you, and it's badly needed, but when you look all around the province as a whole, would you say other regions of the province are kind of falling behind when it comes to traffic improvement, expansion, and maintenance? Well, there's no question that, you know, and that I've been touring through the province a lot, obviously, uh, as leader of the Conservative Party, <clears throat> going around to various areas and there are many, many issues right around the province. You know, in fairness, I think the, the floods from a few years ago that took out um, the Coquihalla and uh, the Fraser Canyon, there's obviously a lot of effort that had to go into there. Yes. But I've, I saw this you know, right back from 2017 when uh, the NDP government came in power. There was a, a change of priorities in terms of where they were spending money. And uh, I think we've seen a, a degradation of our road network across the province uh, because of that, and also because of the fact that they're spending so much more with these community benefit agreements and getting you know, nothing back really in return. Oh, okay. Tell me your thoughts on that, because the community benefit agreements, for people who don't know, that's basically union-only labor, right? And it has to be from a select group of unions, correct? Yes, yeah, so the government set out, I think it was 19 or 18 different unions that were uh, allowed to bid on these projects. Yeah. Uh, anybody could bid on, but their members would have to become uh, one, of these, uh, uh, one of these unions to be able to carry on. 
And what we've seen from that is a, a 20% to sometimes even up to 40% increase in the cost for no additional benefit. A community benefit agreement is, is a misleading term. It really is a project labor agreement is what these things should be called. Speaking to John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia, let me ask you about the HOV lanes in this expanded highway through the valley. There are calls to go all the way to Chilliwack. We'll see what the, how the government responds to that. But, of course, these HOV lanes, high-occupancy vehicle lanes, will be included in this widened highway. Now, as, as many people may know, if you have an electric vehicle in British Columbia, you can get special access to that HOV lane, even if it's not high occupancy, even if it's just one person in that EV, just the driver, you have the sticker on the back of your vehicle, you are allowed to drive in the HOV lane. And John, I know you have thoughts on this. Let me play a clip here for you. This is from uh, yesterday's show. Former traffic police officer Grant Gottgetrew, and I asked him his thoughts on this. Should electric vehicles have special access to these lanes? Here's what he said to me. It's like, oh, buy an EV and you can use the HOV lane anytime you want. It's like, no, uh, that's 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 an abuse of the HOV lane legislation. And again, that's not what it was designed for. Okay, like so he says the HOV lane was designed for just like it says, for a high-occupancy vehicle. So why should an electric vehicle be allowed to drive in that lane with just a single driver in the vehicle? John, your thoughts? You know, Mike, Mike we've, we've talked about this before, and I just think it's, it's a, a complete abuse. I mean, you think about it. The average person in British Columbia is struggling just to put food on the table, and they're paying their taxes and contributing to the province, and the, taxes then are, the province is then taking those taxes, giving a, uh, a discount to people that can afford an HO, uh, I mean, a electric vehicle, so that then they give them the privilege to be able to drive on an HOV lane. I mean, it just, it's an abuse. It's an abuse of, of the taxpayers. It's an abuse of what the HOB, uh, HOV lane was set up to be. And quite frankly, you know, it's something that really should come to an end. There should be no privilege given to people. They shouldn't be able to buy their, you know, a, a privilege access to our roads. Okay, well, I, I received some angry emails from listeners this week who own electric vehicles and who enjoy this access to this HOV lane and they're not they're not happy with this discussion because they're saying hey listen this is about climate change this is about reducing greenhouse gas emissions so that's why you get this is another incentive to buy an EV so what is wrong with that well you know i say to those people please read the book cobalt red uh, understand where the uh, where the cobalt comes from understand where the lithium comes from, understand the environmental impact of all of those things uh, before people start you know, preaching that this is about saving the environment. In addition, where's all the electricity going to come from for these electric vehicles? That's, that means yeah. we are going to have to be creating a tremendous amount of additional electricity. It's going to drive up rates. So once again, the average person is going to have to pay more for their electricity and their everyday life to be able to give people this privilege to be able to have an electric vehicle and then have the privilege to drive on an HOV lane. It makes no sense for the average person in British Columbia. And speaking of paying more, electric vehicles, they're very popular. There's high demand for these vehicles. Our family is looking at maybe getting one for our next vehicle. But they're expensive, right? Like, it's expensive to buy these vehicles. It, just going back to your point, you're saying that you can buy your way into the HOV lane. Is that what you mean? Like, some of these vehicles are very expensive, and then you can drive in the HOV lane. Well, it, exactly. I mean, like mm. I say, the average person can't afford uh, an electric vehicle. An electric vehicle has its place. There's no question. 
it's yeah. an, it's especially in in large communities uh, you know with short commutes electric vehicle makes sense as long of course as we have the uh, uh, the powering uh, capacity the electricity capacity for it but it's once again you're looking at an average vehicle let's say it's forty five thousand dollars the electric equivalent is probably sixty five thousand and yeah. when you look at that over time. Not to mention, somebody really needs to explain what the um, uh, used vehicle market is like for electric vehicles, because batteries only last so long, and then there's a huge expense to replace them. John, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me on. All right, let's keep talking about this widening of Highway 1 through the Fraser Valley. Long overdue. It's chronically congested transportation corridor. So a lot of people would say, like, yeah, it's about time we widen this highway. Mayors and business leaders in Chilliwack saying, whoa, hang on a second here. We need you to widen this highway all the way out to Chilliwack here. Don't stop now. We need you to expedite this, get those shovels in the ground, and get this highway widened out to Chilliwack. Let's check in with Tyler Olson now, reporter, Fraser Valley Current, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Tyler, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Okay, hi, thanks for doing it, and you've, you guys have been doing some great work on this project here. Tell me about some of the design. The, the province released a lot of new information here in the last few days, right, about this project, the design of the project, right? Tell me what we've learned here. Yeah, so last week the province released a new design documents and to guide a new phase of uh, public consultation. And these were by far the, the most extensive ones we've seen. They, uh, they described kind of what type of lanes will be built on this highway, how, where this highway will go to, and then they also described how the project will be built a bit. It will be split into some three different phases, the, the, the bit between Langley and the outskirts of Chilliwack, uh, with the bit uh, closest to Langley obviously being uh, constructed first and it moving down the line as time progresses. Between Langley and Abbotsford, we're looking at bus-on-shoulder lanes, which are a type of lanes that um, can be used just by buses. In some places, the lanes are used only in certain circumstances when the highways are congested. In other places, and in the uh, documents, it's almost... It almost sounds like buses might always be able to use those bus-only lanes. We have the HOV lanes coming for the entire stretch of the road, which are similar to the the stretches uh, in Vancouver that uh, listeners will be familiar with. And then there are truck lanes to... Slated for um, some longer inclines on the on the road. Okay, okay. Now it's very interesting to see mayors and business leaders in Chilliwack saying, "Like we want this project expedited all the way out to Chilliwack." Here, like, what is what is the likelihood of that that the project could be fast tracked here? So Chilliwack is an interesting case because the to, to go back to 2020, some of this this project starts back in 2020 during the election when the NDP promised to widen the highway to Abbotsford by 2026. The plan was Abbotsford, Abbotsford, Abbotsford for a couple of years until the atmospheric river hit and revealed that the, the highway between Abbotsford and Chilliwack, in addition to um, argue, arguably being much smaller than is needed, is, is definitely much lower elevation-wise than is needed because when the uh, atmospheric river hit, that road was completely uh, closed for more than a week, I think, when uh, floodwaters overtopped it. We also saw a tiger dam built on it because it turned out the highway was uh, a conduit for for water through what would otherwise have been a dike. 
so the the highway was a major flaw in the flood protection um, for the region. So the ministry has has looked at that and said, okay, we should fix that at some point. And now they've yeah. split that Sumas Prairie portion of the project up and into its own segment, and it's going through its own design phase and. It will take quite a bit of time to uh, improve, to to come up with the design and to to make it happen. It sounds like, yeah. since that bit of highway will come after uh, everything in Abbotsford. Okay, let me play this really qu- really quickly here because I think for a lot of people they're wondering when is this going to get done? Like I'm wasting my life in these traffic jams. When when will this highway get widened? Now you very kindly provided provided us here with some audio of, of an interview you did with the the provincial infrastructure minister, Dan Coulter, and you ask him, wh- when is the target date for completion here? And listen carefully to how the minister answers here, then I'll get your response. Here's Dan Coulter. I believe uh, to the SUMAS exit would be by 2034, um, 2035, 34, something like that. Um, Yes, it's taking a bit longer, but part of the reason for that is that the, you know, the scope has increased a little bit. 2035. My God, that's a long time, Tyler. Then the, but then they started backtracking on that, right? Tell me what you, tell me what they told you. Yeah, then the ministry, um, after I uh, posted a tweet yesterday suggesting that we would have a story today on our website on fvcurrent.com. I should get that in there. Um, the ministry emailed us and said, uh, that the minister misspoke and that there was no firm timeline for when the project would be widened. When we're talking okay. 2034, 2035, we're talking to the SUMAS exit in Amsterdam. Now, okay. the ministry statement said it could well be completed earlier than that, which isn't exactly a ringing endorsement. It sounds no. almost that. No. Tyler, good, sounds, good digging on the story. Got to, got to cut it off there because of the uh, we're up against the clock. But I certainly yeah, okay, appreciate thanks. your time today. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's go inside BC's gang wars now. We're going to break down the power structure of organized crime in BC. Starts at the street level with drug dealing, including in BC high schools, up the chain to major gangs. There are links to international drug cartels. My guest standing by, Global News reporter Darian Matassa-Fung. I recommend his current investigative series on BC's gang conflict which is running right now on Global News. Watch it online, globalnews.ca. This is an awesome series. Darian has talked to young people who have been drawn into the gang life. Have a listen to this. This is uh, part of the series here where Darian has talked to a, a young man who got involved in drug dealing in high school here. And listen how this, this explanation, how, how, they, how the gangs will draw in these kids. Listen to this. The master class in teen manipulation starts with a seemingly friendly offer of free vapes and e-cigarettes by high school seniors living double lives as drug dealers. As soon as you start getting really addicted and, you, and you're like, okay, I need one after the other, one after the other, they'll start making you pay for it. And if you don't have the money to pay for it, they'll make you do stuff for them. The older teens will then give the now nicotine addicted youth tasks to carry out, finding new customers, actively recruiting other kids, even drug running. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Darian Matassa-Fung, Global News reporter. You just heard his voice there. Hey, Darian, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Great job in this. I'm really enjoying the series. And, you know, this was an, an interesting kind of angle on 
organized crime and sort of drug uh, drug dealing activity in BC high schools because that was an interesting descriptor you had there about how some of these kids will get hooked on vapes like nicotine vapes first right Correct. it's it's the old yeah. sort of oldest rule in the drug dealing business right first one's free you know and then that, and right. then that kicks in after that tell me about how you got into that part of the series yeah so this was actually one of the final interviews that i did and i didn't um actually plan on this part of the story at all it uh kind of came to fruition just like any other you know investigative report uh when you tug on that thread and the thread keeps coming one interview leads to another you know one source leads to another and uh eventually i was able to meet our contact here steve uh, that is not his real name, but we met Steve, and he was a very well-articulated kid uh, who has lived through some difficult life experiences, and he was very willing to share um, his kind of introductory to that world um, and uh, based out of Surrey. So, yeah, you know, just like you mentioned, um, the first one's always free. Yeah. Uh, and And, you know, just like just like you know before e vapes and cigarettes like you said it would be actual drugs this is almost an easier in uh an easier contact point uh, a tool that is used by older teenagers to engage with these these youths yeah and and it's especially troubling when we see the overdose death rate and it's just heartbreaking to think of young people getting hooked on drugs and some of the drug dealing like drug did you discover like drug dealing going on in the schools correct correct so yeah. like this is the very beginning of the process quickly you know as i describe in the stories once the kids are are addicted to these nicotine uh vapes and e-cigarettes you know they're willing to do more and more to get to get their hands on them um and and it can start as easy as something as hey just take this package from point a to point b for me to all the way to dealing uh, cocaine, dealing, you know, other hard drugs, uh, not just cannabis, because, you know, everyone, you know, growing up, there is cannabis dealers in high schools, of course. But yeah. now it, it's seemingly gone um, way beyond anything what, you know, we, you know, younger uh, or sorry, older generations experienced in, in high school. Um, so, yeah, so according to Steve, you know, in, in almost every major high school, at least in Surrey, there is hard drugs um, circulating, at least in a, up in the senior years, uh, at the minimum. Yeah, and it's really troubling when you think about the opioid addiction crisis we got going on right now. And then what about the sort of gang connections here? Like, where do the profits right. flow? Do they, like, they, they kick up to these gang leaders? Absolutely. So yeah. basically how the... I guess you could call it the hierarchy or the pyramid scheme. It goes, there's usually kind of three levels and obviously there's little, little levels in between, but the three, the three levels, as I could describe it at the very top are the long established um, international operating gangs. So this would be uh, cartels, uh, Asian organized crime groups, uh, and and according to CFSU, the leading anti-gang police, uh, still the, the Hells Angels and, and other maybe outlawed motorcycle groups as well. So they're the ones bringing in the, um, the mass 
level of drugs uh, and it trickles down into these mid-level gangs and the mid-level gangs are, are definitely gangs that most people have heard of such as the united nations brothers keepers red scorpions uh, wolf pack alliance just to name a few and then yeah. underneath those mid-level gangs there are these groups called subgroups so that's a coin that's a term coined by again the leading anti-gang police task force in bc and a subgroup can be a group of six to seven kids, basically anywhere ranging from early teenage years to early to mid-20s. And these are the street-level dealers. They're running the dial-a-dope operations. They're carrying out the tasks at the street level for these mid-level gangs. And, and there is an affiliation. Obviously, the drugs trickle down and the money flows upwards. Right. And so... Yeah. And they're very smart about how they kind of compartmentalize all the information in between each level. And so that's obviously for safety. You know, if, uh, you know, a kid, say, for example, a kid gets arrested or, you know, gets caught at school. They have very, very limited information about who they're working for. All they know is that they get the drugs from someone either in their subgroup or someone just outside of it. And... They don't ask questions of where it's coming from, and you just carry out the tasks that have been given to you. Yeah, yeah, it's like yeah, it's like the oldest story in the world in organized crime. It's like a pyramid, right? And the, the money flows up, and the, the sort of the violence and bloodshed and and the bad stuff flo flows down to the sort of street level. I remember watching the the Sopranos once, and Tony Soprano saying, "That's that's the way it works. You guys kick up to me." You know, he's sitting That's in his right. mansion and, and his soldiers are doing the dirty work. Okay, so let's listen to another clip of, of this young man you spoke to that you, you've named Steve here, not his real name, who was dealing drugs in, in, in schools in Surrey. So this is a guy who turned his life around and sort of changed things in his life. And, and here he is just describing that to you. So here's a little bit more from Darian's story on Global. Have a listen. There's knives at school, drugs, mace cans, CO2 airsoft guns, real guns. For Steve, it was seeing his path of destruction as a dangerously hardened drug dealer that made him question how it happened and if there was a way out. You don't understand that I'm hurting people, I'm hurting their parents, I'm destroying lives by selling drugs. Okay, so you heard him describe some of the weapons. He's describing like guns in schools. Is that going on, Darren? Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So the action, you know, talk again, talking to police, talking to Steve and talking to some former high profile gangsters uh, that were operating in the mid level of the pyramid. They all say all everyone says the access to guns now has never been easier. There's more guns getting and, and the vast majority are coming uh, almost entirely from the United States. They're getting smuggled across and how the kind of the process works. Um, without getting too specific, is they'll, they'll usually have a buyer in, in the United States who will go and they'll buy these guns, and then they'll just mass report them stolen. Uh, and, and either they will turn a blind eye and let them be stolen, or they'll directly give them to someone. They will then be smuggled across the border and um, sold to arms dealers here or drug dealers or, or, or gangs. Um, and it's coming, again, on a mass scale. Thousands of guns are, are getting smuggled across yeah. the border. And in that clip we heard there, he was describing some of the weapons in this drug trade. But then he also says how he he turned his life around, right? He had some sort of Correct. epiphany. 
What did he tell you about that? Right. So for Steve specifically, he got uh, in trouble with the law uh, for a few different files. I'm not going to share the details of that. But he def- he got arrested. He got charged. He went to court. Uh, and he was um, a part of his, I guess, um, I don't want to say sentencing, but part of like the deal that he made with the province and, and as well as uh, his parents getting involved is that his participation in one of the anti-gang programs in BC uh, would, you know, that would be an alternative for him. Um, and through the through those connections that were made, he he followed through. He joined one of the programs, and he's been very involved ever since. And yeah. that has kind of given him an out, and it has given him. Uh, proper role models and guidance that he desperately needed uh, at this point of his life. And like I said, this, this, he's a smart kid. He's a smart guy. He was doing it for the money and he was doing it for, you know, he wasn't doing it because he thought it was cool. Right. There's, there's, and, but those kids do exist. Absolutely. But for Steve's specific case, He's a smart guy, and, and with the proper guidance of, of one of these anti-gang programs and the people involved, you know, he's really done a 180. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue going inside BC's gang wars with my guest, Darian Matassa-Fung, Global News reporter. I recommend his new series on this. Watch it online, globalnews.ca. Okay, Darian, let's play a listen. Let's have a listen to a former gang member you interviewed here stanley price and you mentioned before the break that some young people get involved in this like the guy that you spoke to steve who who was doing it for the money he wanted the money other people are drawn to i guess the so-called glamour or excitement uh, of the gang life have a listen to stanley price here then i'll get your thoughts they see these older guys making good money they're dressed nice driving nice vehicles you know gold chains and nice watch Gang members are hot-tempered, myself being one of them, right? I used to be one of them. He used to be one of them, and I guess he used to be a hot-tempered member of a gang. Another guy who's turned his life around. Darren, what did you take away from that interview? Oh, man. So Stanley, he he has quite the story, and he is an incredibly nice guy now, but I couldn't imagine meeting him uh, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Uh, so Stan's story, he's now a, a speaker with one of the anti-gang programs in BC uh, with Kids Play. Um, and so I was able to, to gain access to him, and we had a, a great interview and sit down. And he's shared a lot of things. And, and his experiences, uh, he was a, uh, mainly a gun trafficker in the downtown east side, uh, but he also sold uh, drugs as well uh, for around 15 years. Uh, ranging in in the mid two thousands era, and he it's quite shocking, but he was making up to ten thousand dollars a day uh, selling uh, guns and drugs, mostly again guns. And so what he that clip there, uh, he was sharing you know some of his life experiences, uh, and he was a little bit of an older uh, gangster. Uh, so by the time he uh, kind of hung it up and, and decided to, you know, this is not the right lifestyle for me, et cetera. Uh, I think he was in his, in his mid thirties. So he has a different perspective than obviously 
Steve, who is a very young man uh, and more caught up in the recent gang war. So yeah. um, with Stan, uh, again, he knows all of the, he has all this context and life experience regarding the gang war. Uh, he operated with, uh, he was actually a co-founder of the Red Alert gang uh, in Vancouver uh, in the downtown's east side. So, yeah, he was. Uh, he had quite the story to share, and I definitely uh, recommend checking out the article to to get some more information yeah, on Dan. For, for sure. Speaking to Darian Matasafon, global global news reporter, and we talked. We touched briefly on guns that are purchased in the United States and flow across the border, and you had some amazing stuff in the latest installment in the series about the dark web and how drugs and other contraband are on sale for purchase on on the the dark web internet tell me a little bit about that because i know this is frustrating for police right and trying to crack this we just got two minutes here darian absolutely so the dark web it's it, there's a little bit of misconception of uh, like how difficult it is to use it is not very difficult at all it's just an encrypted website. And so just like when you use a VPN or anything like that, you have to use a special login uh, web browser. And once you access the dark web, there are dozens, I think more than 30 of these websites called crypto markets. And a crypto market website operates just like a Facebook marketplace or an eBay-like website where listings are posted over 80% of the listings are drugs. Uh, and, and some of the bigger international websites, there, it is an immense amount of drugs. I can't, I can't stress enough how large of these quantities they are. So I talked to an SFU associate professor, Richard Frank, and his, his team dissected the space uh, alongside the RCMP. Um, and they looked at eight of the 30, I think it was like 32 uh, marketplaces, and they sampled these eight within around a six-month time frame. Within the six months of the eight markets that they sampled, they found around $150 million worth of goods traveled through these websites. And now the difficulty for law enforcement, everything encrypted uh, from the person that posts it, where the website is held, and it. So the only thing police can actually see that was that a transaction took place, but they do yeah. not know where it left, where it's going. Okay. So they have to find it in transit. They got to catch it at the post office, and that is incredibly difficult. Darian, it's a great job you're doing on this series. I recommend it to the listeners. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Apologize to the fans. We apologize to Ms. Swift. We need to do better, and we will do better. Okay, welcome back to the show. That is the voice there of Joe Berktold, and he is the president of Live Nation, which is the extremely powerful company that owns Ticketmaster. They also own a lot of concert venues in North America. This company is the undisputed power in live concert entertainment, and you heard him apologizing there to the fans of Taylor Swift. He, he apologized to Taylor Swift as well. Why? It was because of the debacle with the rollout of ticket sales at the start of her record-breaking tour, which is now set to come to Toronto. Lots of people scrambling for Taylor Swift tickets to those Toronto shows this week. Many people disappointed. And I'll tell you, the tickets are so expensive 
to go to live shows now. This is something I enjoy doing. And but boy, I've spent a lot of money on some of these concert tickets because you really don't have a lot of options in a, in any in some cases. You either pay or you don't go. Is this company too powerful? Should it be broken up? Should it be subject to more competition? Got Eric Alper standing by to discuss. Let's have another listen here to the president of Ticketmaster here, Joe, Joe Berktold. Now, he blames the problems on the robot ticket scalpers, right? The bots that snap up these tickets online and then resell them for inflated prices. That's what he says is the real problem. Let's listen. Industrial scale ticket scalping that goes on today. A $5 billion industry in concerts alone in the United States, fueled by practices that run counter to the interests of artists and their fans. It's an ever-escalating arms race. Okay, it's an escalating, ever-escalating arms race here with these bots, and he calls it industrial-scale ticket scalping. He says they're trying to stamp it out. Meanwhile, though, if you're a fan, you're a consumer, you're faced with these sky-high tickets to go see a live concert. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Eric Alper, music publicist, commentator. ThatEricAlper.com is his website, and I'm always pleased to welcome him to the show. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, no problem. What else am I going to do? Like, line up for tickets overnight like I used to in the 80s? Yeah, you remember doing that? You'd line up and they'd give you a wristband while you're in line yeah. to get tickets? Yeah, yeah. I remember doing Horrible that. Horrible days. Horrible days. <laughs> okay, this is what much you... better. This yeah. is much better. Well, I guess it's a little... I guess if you can get a ticket, it's much better. Uh, what about all those disappointed Taylor Swift fans this week, though, Eric? I, I read one story that said you, when people trying to buy those tickets to the Toronto shows had, what, like a 400 to 1 shot to actually buy a ticket. Is it that bad? Um, Yeah, it's that bad. But that's yeah. what happens when you've got the world's biggest artists on the planet only having six shows in your market. Um, yeah. You know, 55,000 seats a show, that's 330,000 tickets up for grabs. Somebody inside told me that there were approximately 31 million people trying to get a code from around the world. And so that's where you get your one in 400 shot of getting in. And, uh, you know, that's just simply supply and demand. Um, I, I, look, I I'm a huge music fan. I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan, but not everybody deserves to get a ticket to the hottest concert, literally, probably since Michael Jackson's Thriller era. And maybe before that, the Beatles in 1964. Like, it's no it's not a big jump to say that this is going to be the biggest concert tour in history. It's going to crack a billion dollars for the first time in music's history. And there's a lot more people who want to go to the show than uh, actually allowed to have tickets. Right. So I guess we can complain about Ticketmaster, but I guess at the end of the day, no, it's, it's the never, old rule of supply and demand. It's never ever arguing about the, it's Ticketmaster's fault. Ticketmaster is nothing more than a nameless, faceless corporation who is has a really great design to handle millions and millions of hits a day and hundreds of thousands of sales a minute. They're actually really, really good. Live Nation is actually saving the music industry. As much as people want to complain about the high ticket price, the fact of the matter is, go blame your favorite artist. Mm. I mean, they're the ones that don't want to leave any money on the table. They're the ones that are saying... Instead of charging $150 for all seats in your arena, you should charge $10,000 for the first row because that's what the third party scalping system is getting. And you are leaving money on the table and letting scalpers take your money that you have worked really, really hard for. And these scalpers have done absolutely nothing to deserve that money. People like scalpers. 
when you really get down to it, they like the freedom of giving up tickets, maybe selling them at a profit. But the fact is that if people don't want those tickets, then just don't buy them and wait for them to lower their prices. Yeah. What about the bots here? Now, you heard the president of Ticketmaster say, look, this is the problem that we're facing right now. He says yeah. it's like industrial scale uh, technological ticket scalping, like it's like an, it's like a technological arms race. These robotic computer programs that snap up and buy these tickets as soon as they go on sale and then they're resold for inflated prices. Is that, is that what's going on? Like how big is that? Yeah, it is a fairly big problem. And I think Ticketmaster and Live Nation have really done a lot to do it with this, um, uh, at least trying to solve it. But it, it's just a losing war. You know, when you have the verified fan program, it's really designed not to prove that you are the biggest fan of Taylor Swift. It, they don't really care whether or not if you've bought all 17 versions of Taylor Swift's Midnight Album. They don't see any of that. What they see is the ability to connect through an algorithm, the credit card and information that was used before in their history to buy a substantial amount of tickets and immediately selling them on the third-party ticketing site and weed them out. It's absolutely possible to do that. It's very expensive. Um, and and it may take some time, but the verified system is actually pretty good considering that before this, there were hundreds, if not thousands of tickets that were available. But you, you know what the other big problem is? It's mm. not just solely... Um, not just solely, you know, some person halfway overseas, because it's not really one person. There's a giant industry that is probably on the level of the mob and the underground crime scene, because there's literally hundreds of millions of dollars to be had when you're using something like tickets. Um, but part of it is either a, it's the general public that are putting those up there and B it's, it's actually insiders and season ticket holders for some arenas that have first rights of refusal to buy tickets to major shows. And they're the ones that are actually putting it on sale even before the you know the general public do so mm. you know I, I, pointing fingers it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me all i all i'm mostly worried about is you know even with the high price of tickets that's just what it is you know yeah. inflation is up gas is up hotels are up food is up parking is up transportation is up and wages are up and all of that is going to be combined into that concert ticket that used to be $65 is now going to be 320 but the yeah. artists have to make the money they just have to okay the the clips that we heard there from the president of ticketmaster that was during his testimony in front of a US congressional committee and this was really fascinating testimony because they not only heard from the head of ticketmaster they also heard from his his competitors who are complaining that Ticketmaster is too too powerful. So let's listen to a bit of that, Eric, and then I'll get your thoughts. Now, this is Joe Joe Grotzinger. He is the CEO of a company called SeatGeek, which is like a competitor of of Ticketmaster, and he, and he thinks this is not fair. He thinks Ticketmaster is too powerful. Let's listen to what he let's listen to his argument here. Then I'll get your thoughts. Live Nation controls the most popular entertainers in the world, routes most of the large tours operates the saving systems, and even owns many of the venues. The only way to restore competition in this industry is to break up Ticketmaster and Live Nation. Okay, I guess he would like to see that as a Live Nation competitor. What do you think of that argument? That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. 
Um, no slate to him whatsoever. Ticketmaster got that big because they were simply the best in the business. And I'm not a mouthpiece for them, but I've seen the other ticketing sites and how fast they they can actually handle tickets, what their refund policies are, how fast they can actually do refunds, um, and what they're actually offering in terms of marketing dollars. And they just can't compete with Ticketmaster for that. It's like kind of complaining that, well, you know, Apple is too big or Google is too big or or Amazon is too big, then create create a better system, you know, but I get it, though. I get the fact that, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of I, I think it's something like 90 is something like 95 percent of all venues above 40,000 people um, are using Ticketmaster, but that's right, not Ticketmaster's yeah. fault. There's, there's, you know, there's lots of opportunity out there for the, for the venues who choose to do business and they have chosen to do business with Ticketmaster. Again, the enemy is not Ticketmaster. If people don't like it, then complain to the venue who does the deal with Ticketmaster in the first place. Okay. You were mentioning the, the artists. Let's talk about the artists who actually make the music here and the, and the fans of the, of these artists, because, you know, they, they're dealing with Ticketmaster as well. In some cases, some of these artists maybe feel like they have no choice but to deal with this uh, monolithic uh, corporation here. Have a listen to this here. Now, this is, this is Clyde Lawrence. He's a singer and songwriter with the group, also called Lawrence. And this is part of his testimony in front of a U.S. congressional committee. And he's also critical of Ticketmaster, saying the way they're carving up this pie of money here is not is not exactly fair to the artists. Have a listen to what he says here, Eric, and I'll we'll get your thoughts. Why is it standard for Live Nation to take a 20% commission on our merchandise sales while we never receive a cent of their ancillary revenues like concessions, alcohol, and parking? Okay, I thought that was an interesting point. I didn't realize that Live Nation and Ticketmaster takes a, takes a cut of the t-shirt sales. But uh, your thoughts? Um, it, it, it depends on where it is. If it's in a small club, absolutely. If you're the one that is, if your drummer is the one that is selling the merchandise, go for it, go argue about that. But if you're playing a midsize arena or a theater, probably above 1200 people, chances are, um, they're actually providing the staff and the wherewithal and the tables and, and the skirting and all of that for you. So that's what they're doing. Um, but yeah, you know, again, Lots of venues in every city to go for. Um, no slight again to Lawrence, but the fact of the matter is that most major cities um, in North America don't always use Ticketmaster. And maybe if you feel that badly, then go find a venue that that doesn't use it. I know it's getting harder and harder because Live Nation is buying up more and more venues. Um, but you know, nobody's putting any force for any of these artists to um to to take the deal it's the same thing of what i've seen for the last 40 years of reading and being in this industry is that when the when the artists complain about the lack of income that they have based on the mark based on the share of revenue from a streaming service which you and i have heard over and over again that it's very very low then don't sign the contract that's all. Uh -huh. There's plenty of, of ways to go and get your music heard. It's not the best. Certainly you want the biggest opportunity, but you really don't hear a lot of people that are making the top 1% complain in any business and music shouldn't be any different than that. So I, I feel them. I don't want to come across as like, you know, I I'm denying the, the artist's right to do it. But um, you know, when, <clears throat> when you're making enough money for, 
um, you know, to get by. Those are the artists that really don't complain about it. You just have to get better at what about, it. What about the suck all around? What about the fa- last question for you, Eric? What about yeah. the fans, though? Let's bring it back to the fans. I mean, you've been working in the industry a long time, and you're a music fan as well, as am I. So, what about the fans, though, if they want to see their favorite artists and they go on and they say, What? You're telling me I got to spend $500 for a ticket to go see this band? What, what about them? Do you have any sympathy for them? Not really, because I got to be honest with you. Um, uh, you know, it. Uh, I've always thought that artists completely undervalued what they were worth when they were on the road. Everybody wants to see the body. Everybody wants yeah. to be there live and see the person in real life singing those songs. And I think for a very, very long time, um, they completely undervalued it. And we saw that with the scalpers and the prices mm. that they were charging. Now you don't really hear so much about the scalpers. What we hear is that maybe they have access to tickets first, but charge what the market is willing to bear. And that's one yeah. thing that Live Nation has actually done with the artists is charge what they think that yeah. the general public will be able to afford. Eric, thank you for coming out with your thoughts on it today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay. We'll Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.